Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. And he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, when you and a few other people are exiting a boat, pretty much it's safe to say they were in one place and to fill it required an implied movement. You cannot fill the earth sitting still. In fact, in other texts and other translations, the word more commonly used is swarm or team over the earth. In other words, let there not be a square inch of this planet that you have not filled with your presence and thereby, by extension, God's presence and God's witness and testimony. And that was the command given to them, and initially they did it. It's not a hard assignment after you've been cooped up in a boat to enjoy life breathe the fresh air, make a lot of babies. I mean, that's not the hardest thing in the world. And so they were doing it. And from eight adults, they became a small group of people, became a large group. And the bigger they got, the more livestock they were able to raise. The, the, the pressures are just getting bigger, started to push them to the edges of their property. And they started migrating naturally. I'm not entirely sure that after a while it was an intentional migration. But you know how crowding works. It just kind of says, you know... This place is too small for the both of us. One of us has got to move on. And that's the way usually people slowly migrate. That's how the westward expansion of the United States took place. And, and you know, this is the way people move. So what happened then is that early in our text here, it says as the people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar or Shinar and settled there. <clears throat> Now, there's not a lot given to us except that there must have been something particular about this particular site. I don't know if it was the land itself. You know, if you've ever been wandering or hiking, you've come upon a valley or some great vista, and you think, wouldn't it be great to just settle and live here? If you've ever visited wine country in Northern California, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Most people who visit wine country uh, up near Napa don't ever want to come home. Can I get an amen from anybody who's been up there? Spent about a week up there one time with a bunch of pastors, not drinking wine, having a retreat. And uh, it was the most beautiful, gorgeous land. And if it was anything like that, I can see why people would say, hey, this would really be a good place to pitch our tent, drive our stakes in the ground, and call it home. Or maybe it's just that uh, they were sick of moving. How many of you guys travel for business on a regular basis? Can I just see a show of hands? Some of you, I already know your story. Nobody raised their hands with a smile on their face. Everybody travels all the time for business. They raise their hands like this. <laughs> Whatever. Security at the airport, the airline industry in general, airplane food, hotel food, loneliness, being apart from your family, living out of a suitcase. It gets old really fast. When you're young and you're like, ooh, they think I'm important. They're paying all this money for me to stay at cool hotels. And I bring home all this soap and shampoo and... For like the first six months, it's kind of cool. Then you go, this really, really stinks. Life on the road isn't fun. And you can imagine a large expanding group of people migrating with livestock, tents, and all this. And after all, you're like, you know, our women are having babies. And we, we get to know our neighbors for like a month. And then they move on. And this is no way to live. And so I imagine then that the people's decision to settle in Shinar was one of the most reasonable and practically understandable decisions they ever made. I'll bet you that as the leaders of that group sat down and talked about this, if you sat in on that meeting, you would have been nodding your head in agreement, saying, this makes absolutely good sense. Why wouldn't we settle here? What is the point of moving and moving and moving? 
So then if you understand the practicality of it, how then can this at all be a moral issue? How can we attach any moral value to the fact that these folks decided with very good reasons to settle in a wonderful land for their own benefit? Where's the morality come into play in such a practical decision? Well, really, this is where I think that the human race is divided into two kinds of people then, isn't it? Because there are those who begin processing everything by its practical weight, its merit. And then there are those who say there is another filter we must apply first. And here's what I'm, I'm trying to get at. Does the way you approach life and decision and processing of everything begin with the practical merits or the spiritual and moral merits? You see, here's what I mean by this. There is a difference sometimes between what makes the most sense and what God commands of you and me. You know, happily, most of the time, what God wants from us and what makes the most sense are the same thing. I'm glad for that because that at least gives me the confidence that God's not uh, somebody without a, a mind or a brain. He knows what he's doing. Most of the time when God speaks and the leaders echo his voice, people go, wow, I would have never thought of that. That's genius. That is so good. But once in a while, God will command us to do something that doesn't always make sense. On the flip side, sometimes there will be something that makes perfect, inviolable, absolutely defensible sense. And it is absolutely not what God wants for us. And this is the real thing about it. It makes no, no sense or it does no good to argue in favor of a decision simply on its practical merits if it is actually against what God has told us to do. You know, ultimately, it boils down to this. It's a question of authority. Because everything could make sense, but at the end of the day, somebody's got to acknowledge, if God is God, does He have the right to command us to something that we don't fully agree with or understand? Here's another way of looking at it. Is something the right thing to do only because it makes sense, or because thus saith the Lord? You know, here's an illustration that might help you understand this principle about authority and reason. Next time you're pulled over for a traffic violation, try explaining to the officer all of the really good reasons why you were doing what you were doing when you get caught. Now, if you're a woman and you cry and you know you kind of do that pouty lip thing, right? maybe you'll get out of a couple tickets. I've tried that. Uh, <clears throat> it usually gets a billy club starting to get loosened out of the belt. You know, it doesn't work for me. It doesn't seem like I can ever get out of a ticket. And at the end of the day, no matter how good my reasons were, you, you don't understand. I've been yelling at my church people to be on time for prayer meeting. Now I'm late, so i got to get there. That's why I was speeding. Please, you got to understand, officer. Haven't you ever been in a jam? Yes, I have. That'll be $95. You know, you try explaining that to a police officer, and you'll begin to understand quickly. Ultimately, it's an issue of authority, isn't it? You might have very good reasons why it makes sense, but at the end of the day, that sign has higher authority than your reasoning. I think that's something very important for us to remember because as we walk through life, and if you're a, an astute observer, please don't get cynical and presume that all of this is meant to mold your minds to move with us in the relocation or things like that. This is a general universal principle that applies to everything in your Christian life. If you're a pragmatist first, and the way you make every decision in life is what makes sense. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. That's great. I hope you live a sensible life. But if you don't back up a little bit and make your new starting point, thus saith the Lord. 
It's hard to defend that the life you're building is in fact a life of following Christ. It is simply a consultant's practicality applied to life. It is logic, not lordship, that is driving you forward. And that's a serious problem for those who say that we name the name of Christ and we follow the lordship of the King of Kings. That, to me, is a serious moral issue. That is when morality comes into play in something as simple as where should we live. Each one of us is living somewhere because we decided to settle in Chicagoland. In an age of global and national corporations and air travel, do you realize you could pretty much live in any part of this country or world that you want to? But for some reason, you have settled in Chicago. How you reach that decision and will often determine how you will be moved or uprooted from that place too. How do you make the big decisions of your life? I hope that your life makes great sense. But I hope one step behind that, there is this clear acknowledgement that if God says go, then stopping is a moral sin. And if God says stop, going is a moral sin. Do you understand that principle? We do not live by our wits alone, but we live under the lordship of God who speaks and leads his people. You know, rebellion against God is a slippery slope. Each step that you take away from God's authority makes it that much easier to take the next one. And we all know how that works. I mean, watch a child, watch a student if you're a teacher. You give them one inch where they, they get a little emboldened. They succeed in the rebellion. And what happens? The next time, they're not as scared. I remember when I was a little kid and I learned the F word. Okay? And I knew that it was a very bad word. In fact, I had, I had drawn this really huge line, this boundary, the Great Wall of China in my mind. and said, we never speak that word. That is the word that must never be spoken from our lips. And then my friend kept saying it. And one day I said, I wonder what it would feel like if I just said it. So no one was around. I just said, I'm not going to say it here, but I just went. And I did it. And I was terrified. And I was exhilarated, and my heart was pounding out of my chest. I said, whoa, I did it. And I'm alive still, and my tongue didn't rot and fall out with leprosy, and so I did it again. And then again. And I didn't stop until I became a Christian in senior year of high school. And as I shared with you from this pulpit before, I turned it into a veritable art form. I was so good at swearing that people would just pause and go, man, that was just beautiful. I've never heard those words strung together like that. that you are a, a profanity genius. You know, that's the funny thing about rebellion. You take a baby step, and somehow if you succeed and you survive, it makes the heart that much bolder to keep going. You know, if you can defy God's authority in something as basic as stop and go, if you can stop when he says go and go when he says stop, doesn't it stand to reason that there's a very high probability your next move and my next move will be just as misguided as the first one? That probably where you stop or where you go from that point on will only take you further and further from a God who you have rejected at hello. Let's move on. By the way, that's what I imagine Shinar to look like. <laughs> It's a, that's a scene from just about anywhere in that part of the world. So I, I, just, I wonder if it was really the merits of the land itself that drew them. But listen to what it says. And then they said to one another, Come, 
Let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Now, I puzzled over this verse for a while. Like, What's the significance of this? But if this is, in fact, what the place looked like, you can imagine there's a scarcity of building materials. In the ancient world, usually what they would do is find large rock formations or quarries underground, and they would excavate the rock and cut it to pieces and use that as building material. Or they would tear down the forest and use the wood. But in a place like that, it was clear what they were saying is, we look around and don't find building materials, but we've decided to plant here regardless. God is not making it easy for them to settle, but their defiance drives them to say, it doesn't matter if there's no stone to build with, we will make bricks for ourselves. This is the first step of this act of declaring independence from God. What they're saying is God has not given us what we need to settle, but that will not deter us. All the pointers indicate we should keep moving, but we will make our own decision and our own provision and stay here because we can always create bricks. The irony is that everyone knows bricks are less sturdy than stone. What they were building was something far less safe, far less enduring, especially as they burned them thoroughly. Perhaps imitating the texture of stone, but nowhere near replicating the strength of stone. And so this is where they begin. They say, well, it doesn't matter that it doesn't look good to stay. We will stay and make it work by our own might and our own ingenuity. And then they said, come, and so you see, you can sense the momentum starting to build here. They said, well, now that we decided to settle and make bricks, let's go one step further. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. What we see, interestingly enough, is there's several points of rebellion here. One is that every dwelling place God that, that man had occupied until now in, this, in the Bible story was provided by God. And, and then now what they're saying is, we will make ourselves a resting place. And then we will make ourselves a name. To this point in the Bible story, all the names were given by God. That is one of the central characteristics of God, is he gazes upon the essence of a, of a thing or a person, and he gives it a name. And what they're saying is, we're not necessarily happy with the names God's giving us. We will give a name for ourselves. And we don't mean names like, um, like Joe or Mike or Dan, but names like servant, sheep, follower, bride, son or daughter brother or sister. There are names we have which we reject. I see this nowhere more prominently in the church than among my colleagues, fellow pastors. We live in an age of millionaire celebrity pastors. There's a name God gave to men like me. It is shepherd. But not even shepherd, it's under-shepherd. It is the employee of the great shepherd, the one who really owns the sheep. They are not ours. It is servant, really slave. It is student. It is humble follower. It is not professional. It is not celebrity. It's not movie star. It's not author who sold millions of copies of books. It is to be a servant of God's people and an under-shepherd of His flock. That is our name. And I'm telling you right now, in honesty and humility, so many of my colleagues have rejected that name in favor of something that is the Christianized version of Hollywood celebrity. It's heady stuff. It's addictive, intoxicating to be as well-recognized a household name as Brad Pitt or anyone else. Do you realize one out of ten Americans know the name of Rick Warren? Now, I'm not 
castigating him for that. That's not his fault. I'm saying, do you realize there was a time when no one would know the name of a local church pastor beyond that church's congregation? You have a name too. It's a name given by God. It is not chaser of the American dream. It is not American success story. It is not monument to self-reliance and self-achievement. It is child of God. It is follower and servant of Jesus Christ. It is His hands, His feet. This is the name given to you and me. This is our name. And I see over and over, sadly, that in Christ's church, that name is being rejected for a name we make for ourselves. We wear this Christian faith on our terms. We define the rules of engagement. How far we'll go. What we will be asked to do. How much we will give. It's all driven by our giving ourselves a name we can live with. Because we reject the names that God gives us. This is their declaration of independence. And think about it. When the, when the founding fathers of this country drafted that document, they signed it. If you ever watch the HBO miniseries, John Adams, there is an amazing moment after they finally sign it. The whole miniseries is working up to this moment of decision, and then they do it, and everyone sits around in the room, and it's almost as if, part of my language, they collectively say, Oh, crapeth. What have we just done? We have just hoisted a gigantic 13-colony middle appendage at the greatest empire on the face of God's earth. Do we have some kind of death wish? Are we smoking something? Is somebody spiking the tea in, in Boston? Because what they've just done is ridiculous. They have declared independence in the face of great authority. I believe that's what the people in Babel were doing. And I wonder about some of the declarations of independence that we make as Christians. The towers we're building in defiance of the Lord. And I will be independently wealthy lest I ever have to depend on God or other people for my welfare. I will move up the ranks lest I ever have to submit my will to the authority of another. I will not make that many friends lest I be obligated to love and serve others out of my heart. And there are so many other things I could come up with. Declarations of independence where we decide we will do things this way lest we fill in the blank. And what's interesting is, if you look back, look what it says. We will do these things lest what? We be dispersed over the face of the whole earth, which is precisely what God wanted. What they feared was exactly what God had commanded of them. They had turned God's command into the greatest source of worry. It reminds me when people say, I'm so afraid God's going to send me to Africa. If you've ever been to Africa on God's work, you would never say it that way. You would say, man, I, I wish God would send me there for the work that He's doing. Anyone who's ever been knows what I'm talking about. It's funny, when we turn into our greatest fears, the very thing which God says will bring Him greatest glory, which would please Him most, have you in your life somehow taken a point of God's obedience or, or command and turned it into something you dread? If you have, I guarantee you there are in your own heart written some firm declarations of independence from God. Now let's move on because I want to give a human face to this. Sometimes when you talk about 
great undertakings like this, it's easy to see a, a sort of faceless, generic story. So we got to talk about this dude, all right? Now, how many of you guys, that was an insult when you were in junior high? You Nimrod, right? That is the greatest name in the ancient world. When you used to say Nimrod in the ancient world, people would, their teeth would clatter in fear. Careful, he might be around. Nimrod was not a Nimrod, he was a Nimrod. I don't know if that makes any sense. But you see, sometimes it's possible for groups of people to move as one collective swarm, but that's very rare in human life. Much more common is when you see a movement of people standing behind that or in front of it is a leader or key person who is moving those people behind them. That is just the way human hearts seem to work. Behind every great movement of people, you can discern somebody, whether quiet or vocal, who is in front of that movement, leading it. And behind this movement to build the tower and the city of Babel. By the way, do you catch that? It's not just the tower. The tower gets all the airtime. But they were building a city around the base of that tower. They were not just building a monument. They were building a resting place, a dwelling place for themselves. And behind this desire to build was a strong ambition and pride and strength and virility of one of the greatest human beings that ever lived. And by greatest, I mean most formidable, most impressive. If you met him today, you would instinctively be afraid or follow him. You've got to turn back a little bit to Genesis chapter 9 to see this, this guy being described here. This is actually verses 8 through 10. I skipped 11 and 12. It says, Cush, <clears throat> one of the descendants of Noah, fathered Nimrod. This isn't a list of a long list of the table of nations, but for some reason, the writer of Genesis takes a break from the normal, the normal table of nations and gives an aside, a little soliloquy about this guy named Nimrod. He gets special mention. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. That's the ESV's translation. Most other translations, I think, get it more, more accurate to the spirit of it. He was a mighty warrior. Mighty warrior. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalneh, in the land of Shinar. In other words, this city Babel, which actually is the foundations of the ancient city known as Babylon, is built as the first center of this earthly empire of a guy named Nimrod. Now, says Nimrod was a mighty hunter. I don't want you to get this picture in your mind when you hear hunter, okay? This is not some dude in an orange cap going out to shoot poor defenseless animals. This word hunter is a very specific word. He was a hunter of men. I want you to think more King Leonidas. That's the mental picture. Or maybe even better, Conan the Barbarian, okay? That's the most palatable picture of Conan the Barbarian that I could find on the internet. All the other ones were a little shady and violent. That's the picture of Nimrod I want you to hold in your heart. Was somebody who in a world that was forged by brute force and sheer might, was feared above all others, was the first on earth, not to be just called dude, but mighty warrior, mighty hunter. In fact, they, his name became proverbial. When a boy was born who had a lot of hair and a little heft, they said, this boy may grow up to be like Nimrod. Nimrod became a word like Xerox. It was a, a proper noun that became a common noun. Do you get that? 
This is who he was. And it was in the force and the weight of this man's impressive stature, his vision, his strength, he built an empire. And in fact, look at what it says. <clears throat> the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. This is the first time in the Bible that the word kingdom appears, and it's not a reference to the kingdom of God, but sadly, to the kingdom of Nimrod. And what it says is, though God was the king, Nimrod was the first to declare that he would himself be a better king. And this, this was hubris, pride, confidence at its height, and people responded to it. And when Nimrod rolled into a town with his band of soldiers and declared that he would take things over and lead them somewhere else, people instinctively latched onto this guy. They followed him from the gut the way you might expect people to do. Maybe I'll leave that picture up there so you understand the kind of guy we're talking about. And so he begins to build this kingdom, and you can just imagine it, right? Just imagine it. There must have been such a frenzy of activity down in the plains of Shinar. A small army of workers. You know what I'm talking about. This is, this is not uh, one building being erected. This is an entire city being built from scratch to accommodate thousands and thousands of people. And so there must have been dust and the sounds and sights and smells of construction. There is this electricity in the air, just like at the campaign headquarters for President Obama, just before the announcement was made, when they were sure that he was going to win. You know that feeling of like there's buzz everywhere. People knew that they were part of something happening on the move. You've been part of that, haven't you? You've been a part of something like that, where you walk in the room and you just feel it. This is where the action is. In fact, I've heard of some people, the way they shop for sales you know, at the, at the mall is they walk around, look for the biggest crowds of people, and then just go wherever they are because clearly there are people who have already found something worth finding. We know what we're talking about, that, what that feels like when there's just activity. And so you can imagine there's a ruckus. And somewhere along the way, God who sees all things takes special note of it. He goes, hey, what's going on in that plain of Shinar right now? There's a lot of dust a lot of noise. I particularly hear the booming voice of this one little guy named Nimrod. Let's see what's going on down there. And listen to how it's phrased. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. In the midst of this glorious pageant of human might and unity, the language could not be more intentional and more clear. Here's man down on earth creating a, an incredible, incredible storm of activity. Building a tower that was taller than any structure that had ever stood on earth before. People would look up at it just like they look at the Burj Tower and just go, unbelievable. Do you realize the Saudis are now cleared to build a building that will be one mile high? One mile high. It's going to be in the red city, coastal city of uh, Jeddah in Saudi Arabia. Ridiculous. I think it's going to topple over, actually. But think about it. They're staring at this thing, and they're just marveling at it. And to them, it's just like if you've ever stood at the base of the Sears Tower and looked up, you almost get vertigo. It feels like the thing's going to fall on you. Did you ever see the skyline of Chicago while you're landing on O'Hare from a plane? You go, oh, cute, look at it. It's like little blocks. It looks like a children's toy. And you see the entire magnificent coast of Chicago's magnificent mile of the downtown skyline which looks so impressive from the ground it looks so small from the sky the contrast is clear that we think we are so impressive 
so mighty. This is the greatest work we've ever achieved. And God comes down for as high as they had built. God still had to come downstairs to see what they were working on. Listen, here's what this reminds me of. Every parent can relate to this, okay? Most parents, anyway. Once in a while, Jeannie and I will be doing something on the first floor. And we'll hear a ruckus down in the basement. It's clear that something's going on down there because we'll usually hear our kid's voice. Usually Noah, who's the older one, he's directing things. And, and so there's a lot of orders being shouted. And then once in a while, one of the kids runs upstairs, grabs something, runs back down. And we're kind of amused, going, oh, there's definitely something going on down there. And half of us, we're like curious. The other half is like we dread going down there to see what's going on. But after a while, when it gets a little quiet, we go, we got to check this out. So we go downstairs, and what do we find? Usually you find something like this. Now, that's not my kids, but I found this on the internet. It just That vintage look, it just spoke to me. What kid hasn't done that with the furniture? Created a cushion fort that was like impenetrable, bulletproof. You could find the force in there. You know, It was unbelievable, and you wouldn't want to leave all day. Do you remember what it felt like to be a kid so proud of the thing you had made? And it's just that feeling of mom and dad coming downstairs with a half smile on their face. Let's go see what the children of men have built. That's sobering to me. It ought to be sobering to you. That somewhere along the way, as high as we think we've risen, God will always have to come down to commune with us. We need to be careful never to grow too impressed with ourselves. You know, I hope you will keep the leaders of this church always accountable to that. It's so easy to become impressed with what you've done, where you've come. It's so easy to start believing your own press, think that we're now changed the arena of competition. We used to compete with the 50-something churches. Now we're in the, swimming in the deep end of the pool with the big dogs. We're in the 200s and 300s soon. We'll be at the thousands, baby. We're getting there. We're going to arrive soon. It is so easy. When you walk into a conference and the speakers come up to you and say hello, you're like, yeah, boy. I am the man. I am known now. Do you have any idea how seductive, how drug-like that experience can be? How human it is to want to be impressive more than to want to be faithful. If you ever see us talking about this church like it's a brand or a name or a movement or anything other than the sheep of God faithfully following Him, you call us on it. It's my prayer that God will do to us what He did to those building Babel. If we ever get so proud and taken with ourselves that we forget His name, I pray that He will wreck this church and scatter us to the winds. Please hold us accountable to this. At the height of our achievement, you will always be a child to God. You might impress me. What does that prove? Right? What does that prove? Let me give you a last thing. We'll wrap this up here. Strange mercy. You know, at first when you read verse 6, look at it. And the Lord said, Behold... They are one people, 
And they all have one language and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. When you first read that, it's easy to think that what you're getting is God is genuinely impressed by these people. He's like, oh, the kids are... It'd be like if we came down and we're expecting a cushioned fortress and instead the kids had built a wooden clubhouse with plumbing and electrical. You know what I mean? That would be like, whoa, that's not what's happening here. God's not going, oh, what's all that clamor? And he goes, dang, that's actually a pretty good tower. Give them a year, they might actually breach the cloud layer. I don't think that's at all the spirit of what God is saying. He is not making note of their achievement, but of their pride and their ambition. What he's commenting on is not what they've managed to build, but how deep that well in their hearts is for self-reliance, for pride. He's not concerned that they'll fail. He's concerned that they will succeed in this. And if they do, then all bets are off. There's nothing they will not attempt to do from then on in the name of their own glory. He understood that if they succeeded in the building of this tower, it would drive such a wedge between them and him, it might not be crossable again. Sometimes, success is failure. We all need to remember that. Sometimes, success is failure. What he's saying is that nothing that they try to do will be out of bounds for them. They will undoubtedly fail. I'm sure there's no way they could have building materials and technology to build an actual skyscraper that would breach the clouds. So it's not that he's saying they will, they will not fail at things, but that they will not fail to be proud in any level, in any way. Here's another thing that God points out about them. He says, look, behold, they are one people and they all have one language. I wish we could say that about the church. When you first read that, that sounds like a good thing, doesn't it? They were all united. Let me tell you something. The people who were building Babylon, they were one of the most united groups of human beings ever on the earth. They moved like a well-oiled machine. They were unanimously in support of Nimrod, their king. And they were going to do this thing no matter what. It took a divine and supernatural intervention of God to halt their progress because they had such solidarity, such unity among them that even God took note of it. But here's another thing we need to remember. Consensus and agreement among people is no guarantee that those people are on the path of God. Just because we agree on something, even unanimously, gives us no guarantee that we have put ourselves on the path that leads to obedience to God and to His Son, Jesus Christ. Do you understand that it's possible for people to agree unanimously on things that are horribly disobedient? and outside the will of God. It's possible. In fact, sometimes Jeannie and I comment, it seems like the, the times that our kids are getting along best with each other are when they are violating all our rules together. Why is that? That they get along best when they're being bad. It's just human nature. It's possible to agree on things that have nothing to do with the will of God for us. Now here's the thing. When God is working, there is always genuine unity, the purest kind. So let's not look askance at unity and be skeptical of it. I'm not trying to create cynics out of us. But to say, always be on your guard. Just because we have joined our hands, sing Kumbaya, and believe that we are all together, does not mean we are on God's boat. Do you understand that? 
And so as we move forward in life as a church or as individual Christians, this is something we need to take home with us. If the starting place is not to seek the voice of God, then eventually what will happen is human agreement will take the place of God's leading. Do you get that? And we will nod our heads to one another before God has ever nodded his head to us. And that is not a good thing. The purest kind of unity happens when people of God join together, not only in conversation and analysis, but in prayer. When the people of God bow their knees before God and say, Lord, what is it that you are doing among us and what do you want from us? If we do that together and we hear together, then we are the the ones who benefit from words like this in Ephesians. Listen to what the promise is. We are all one body. We have the same spirit. And we have all been called to the same glorious future. There is only one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and there is only one God and Father who is over us all and in us all and living through us all. In other words, the picture is when people seek the Lord in prayer and humility, He will meet those people there and He will produce a genuine unity. The kind that is pure and godly and unshakable. And so that's the kind of unity we aim for. It's not that everyone has been duly convinced. It's not that every leaf has been overturned. Every question has been asked and answered. But it is first and foremost that we have tapped in to the voice of the one God, one Lord, one Spirit. And he has brought his church together. If that doesn't take place, then it is very possible that we will agree unanimously on things that have very little to do with God. This is a good place to say amen, if you agree. We've got a lot of big things facing us as a church. And I am more than willing to hear the perspectives of 230 people. That's okay with me. But before we get into a lot of conversation, it is my plea as your pastor that we will all together get on our knees and ask the Lord what he wants. Our voices don't matter that much if the voice of God has been muted. And so you'll be hearing about prayer meetings and not just town hall meetings. And if you were to ask me which one of those is more important to the future of this church, hands down, I would say, I wish the prayer meetings would be better attended than the town hall meetings. I'm a realist. I don't expect they will be. But I think they ought to be. I hope they will be. Because if we could only have one of those two meetings, with my eyes closed, I would say that we need to pray. And so what does God do? In a strange thing He does, a strange act of mercy, He comes down and He says, Listen, if we don't stop them, They're going to run amok and they're going to be so proud and rebellious there's no turning them. So he confuses their language. Why? Because it is the most foundational basis of their unity. They had one language, which meant they had one culture largely. One culture, one language, one kind of way of looking at things. Pastor Matt was telling me about some peculiarities in certain languages that drive culture. One language he was telling me about, they don't have any word for numbers beyond two. There's one, two, and a few. I would like to borrow a few dollars from those people and return a few dollars in exchange. I mean, that, that's just weird. They go, hey, how many do you see? A few. <laughs> it could be 500. It's a few. Do you see how language drives culture and it brings people together on a certain platform or operating system? I think language is the OS 
of human community. And God rewrites it on him. He changes the kernel. And what happens? What happens? Suddenly you stick the disc in and it's not computing. Here's what he does. This is the word love in different languages. How different can they be? Rockhouse. That's Finnish. I rockhouse you. It's not a romantic culture, I bet. Right? <laughs> I, I'm just looking at some of these. Deliver. <laughs> That's German. I think amor is the most soft sounding. It's just so lovey sounding. But if that simple basic word is spoken so differently, do you realize today, depending on who you listen to, we've got between five and, five and 7,000 languages extant on the earth. And that's driven people apart. It's pretty close to home. Many of us grew up in immigrant families, and language was one of the greatest divides between you and your parents. The inability to speak at great depth in your heart language and share conversation that was meaningful. You would try in your native tongue, and you would kind of make yourself half understood. They would try in English and make themselves half understood, and then you would fight and go, you're dumb, and you would walk away. That's what happens when you confuse language. People find it harder and harder to coexist. And when you screw up their languages, you screw up their community. This might seem like an insecure God throwing a hissy fit and going, Oh, they're almost here. We've got to do something. They're on the 118th floor. Pretty soon, they're going to get here. This is not the tantrum of an insecure God. This is one of the most merciful things He could have done. He attacked the very basis of their unity because their unity offended Him. Unity itself is not inherently a moral good. Only unity built around obedience to Christ has value. That is the only morally good unity we will ever see on the face of the earth. And I, I need to say that again to us because we live in an age where solidarity of any flavor is looked on as morally good. But I tell you, it will not last. The only lasting unity is that which God forges under His authority, around His causes and purposes, and in His name. We need to remember that as the church. And because they were misusing their unity to further their own ends and not God's, He broke their unity apart and scattered them to the four corners of the earth. You might think this is punishment, but this was not punitive, it was preventative. It was to restrain their hands so that they could not sin anymore. It's the same way that you have a parent who puts nail polish on their, their kids' fingers to keep them from biting their nails. That's cruel because you bite down and it tastes awful. Why would you do that to your kid? Because that ain't a snack. They're not supposed to bite their nails. This is preventative, not punitive. To keep them from doing something more to harm themselves, to destroy themselves. For they surely would have if they'd been left to their devices. We need to understand that sometimes the most merciful thing God will ever do is destroy and wreck our plans. You know what I think is happening right now in this economy? I think God is reaching after the hearts of a lot of people who thought they could build a castle to insulate themselves and their families from the God who loves them. He's taking the very concrete platform of their confidence and sense of well-being and shaking it up to remind them that there's more to this life than the nest egg you can sock away. When it gets hard to put gas in your $50,000 SUV and you start to feel the pinch with your kid's tuition, God is getting after some people 
who started building a tower of their own away from Him. He is causing them to fail in a place that will bring them home because sometimes failure and collapse is the most merciful thing which God will do. I am soberly aware of this as a church leader because we have plans in our hearts. And if they are not the plans of God, then we will destroy a perfectly good church. You have no idea how that humbles me. It is in part why I have insomnia. Because I'm aware of how many lives are tied up with my, my life's work. I understand that. I may not always wear it with the greatest humility. You may not always like the way I wear it or the way the other leaders wear it. But it keeps us up at night knowing that if we have not really heard from God, then what we do will fail and that will be God's mercy to us. If we ever stop being the church that God wants us to be, then it is my prayer and it should be your prayer that God will either reform us or destroy us. To disband this church and take all of us and scatter us to other churches that are still being faithful to His name. Better that we be separated than that we cling together on a sinking ship in defiance of God. This is His church, His show. It always has been. And I want us to remember that together. Let's never work for a unity that is not built around God. Amen? So let me wrap it up with a conclusion that will not be wrapped up this morning, but will point you to some things ahead. So far in the Bible story, and we're only in Genesis 11, message 5 of 100, but so far a pattern seems to be emerging, but it seems like it's breaking right here. There's this pattern where mankind screws up, and at the moment of greatest despair, God gives a little sliver of hope. It happened in Eden when Adam and Eve sinned greatly and they were cast out of Eden. But God said to them, Behold, one day the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. That was a little ray of hope. It wouldn't happen for thousands of years, but they needed something because they felt like it had all gone to pot. And one generation later, Cain murders his brother Abel in cold blood in a jealous rage. And just when he thinks he's being banished from everyone, he's got a marked man, he's, he's got a price on his head, God puts a mark on Cain and says, Do not kill this man, for he's protected by God. And he gives Cain, the murderer, a ray of hope. And then he's about to bring a flood that will flush the toilet on all life on planet Earth. But just then, God raises up a man named Noah, tells him to build a boat, and he leaves a remnant who would rebuild the human race. Every time we screw up and every time God's judgment comes, at the moment of lowest despair, when the story should end horribly, there's a little bit of hope. It's, it's God's cosmic, stay tuned, dot, dot, dot. You know what I'm talking about? So then we get the story of Babel. And we wonder, where's the resolution? Where's our little sliver of hope? Mankind has greatly offended God. He has made a monument to reach up to the heavens on his own might. And God has left the city and the tower half built. As a reminder or testimony that he is God and we are not. He scatters everybody speaking different languages to the four corners of the earth. In the end he gets what he wants. They're filling the earth on his terms, not theirs. But where's the hope, the resolution? Because as soon as the Tower of Babel story wraps up, we get into this strange genealogy of Shem, one of the sons of Noah. And you're like, 
I don't get it. Is that it? That's how the story... I was, I was like, this is my Bible. Come on, this guy, I must have skipped a page or something. How do you just end that story there? Until you get to the end of the genealogy. And there it says there was a man named Terah. One of the descendants of Shem. And from Terah was born Abram, who would become Abraham. Stay tuned. Because with the arrival of Abraham, God's plan for redemption he hits the nitrous oxide. It, gets, it takes off. It achieves escape velocity finally. With the calling of Abraham, something amazing is unleashed in the world. And we're going to follow that story very methodically. And you're going to see what a good God we have. That every time we screw up and every time we think we should be grounded for eternity, God throws us a little ray of hope. And every one of those rays of hope ultimately points to what would happen at the end of Abraham's line was that Jesus Christ of Nazareth would come to the earth and redeem us in a way that no other could ever do. This is the great story of the Bible. And we're going to see it unfold. And I hope you'll stay with us, follow us through the whole thing. Two years from now, you're going to understand God's heart better than you ever did before. Let's pray together. You know, I'm tempted to be skeptical only because I've lived in the church all my life. But I'd like us to pray that before God makes us a deliberating or discussing church, He would make us a praying church. I think very few pastors would come before the congregations and say, I totally expect that our prayer meeting will be better attended than our town hall meeting. But why can't we dare to dream for that? You know, one thing we learn from the people building Babylon is that if we don't hear from God, everything else we set out to do will end up bringing us in the wrong direction. The only real safety for this church is not good leaders or a good process. It is the Spirit of God speaking to all of His people in unity. That is our only defense against error and against sin, isn't it? I want to ask you to accept God's invitation to you personally. Would you join in becoming a church that builds its unity around God's voice and not our will? Would you affirm today that what God's church needs is not your opinion before He needs your prayers. The time for planning is going to be quickly upon us. But as a church, there's work to be done. Let's pray together. Let's seek the will of God together. Why well, would just give that simple prayer to the Lord? In faith, let's say that we will be a praying church. Let's do that right now. Let's stand before the Lord. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.